Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Over the last six months, student loan forgiveness has received a lot of attention, and understandably so. It'll cost around $500 billion and affect millions of borrowers. But at the same time, the Biden administration made its loan forgiveness announcement. It also announced proposed changes for another part of the student loan program. And those will also cost billions of dollars and also affect millions of borrowers. However, even though this proposed change, if enacted, would fundamentally change student borrowing for past, present, and future borrowers, it's received very little attention. The program I'm talking about is IDR, or Income Driven Repayment. And according to a new report titled, Few College Students Will Repay Student Loans Under the Biden Administration's Proposal, written by Matthew Chingos, Jason Delisle, and Jason Cohn of the Urban Institute, it will have some eyebrow-raising effects. So to discuss their findings, and IDR more broadly, I invited Matt Chingos and Jason Delisle onto the podcast. Matt, Jason, thanks for coming on the report card. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. So we'll get into the specifics of IDR and the Biden administration's changes in a minute. But before that, I want to ask you, why hasn't this set of IDR changes received that much attention? Matt? I think this feels really wonky to a lot of people. It's the details. It's what's the income exemption? What's the assessment rate? 10% to 5%. It doesn't have the salience of you're getting your loans forgiven. Oh, and I think we'll bear that out in this podcast. Um, So let's take a step back because some of these things are accessible and some of them aren't. Like I get student loans, right? The federal government provides loans. Some are subsidized, some are not. They want to finance post-secondary education, increase access and so forth. I also get the forgiveness plan. I may not agree with it, but I get it. Uh, Borrowers have a ton of debt, way over a trillion dollars, which is just such a large amount of money, it's hard to even imagine. And so the federal government thinks, well, maybe we should uh, provide some sort of relief. And the Biden proposal uh, simply is uh, $10,000 across the board, up to $10,000 across the board, and $20,000 to those borrowers who received Pell Grants. IDR, less intuitive. So in simplest terms, Jason, what is IDR? Um, You make payments on your student loan based on your income. So there's a formula calculate your monthly payment. So it's not based on what you owe. It's not based on your interest rate. It's based on your income. And then after a certain number of payments or period of time, if there's anything left on your loan, it's forgiven. Okay. So there's a formula here. And basically if I make a bunch of money, let's say I, I, I hit it rich uh, because I land a job in a think tank uh, and, and, and then I have plenty of money to cover my student loans, then I'm going to pay sort of full freight what I would have been expected. But if I get out and I don't really make a salary to cover a certain amount of student loans, you're going to discount my payment for uh, as long as my income is depressed. And then at some point down the line, the remaining principal gets forgiven. Yeah. And the, and the reason why you have the forgiveness uh, as, as a key piece of this is that if the payments based on your income aren't enough to sort of service the loan to cover what you should be paying on it, um, then every month or every year, there's, there's you know, still a loan left there, right? So you're making very slow progress on paying your loan, so you have the loan forgiveness there at some point 
um, to sort of, you know, call it even. And so the better college works to increase people's incomes, the less of a problem this is. I mean, in theory, I mean, but what we'll talk about today is you could get the formula so low that even someone who has the expected outcome in their income from getting a degree is still likely to not fully pay off the loan, <laughs> right? So it matters where how much of your income you have to pay towards your loan. You could pay such a small share that even someone who does really well doesn't pay back their loan. And how you implement it matters a lot. You could get this perfectly right in theory, but it still falls apart in practice because you don't administer the system correctly. So, Matt, I don't want to ask you to speak for the Biden administration, but generally speaking, I mean, why does the Biden administration seem to want to change IDR? I mean, I think their pitch here is they want to make student loan repayment more affordable, right? You can do that in a bunch of different ways. You can write off $10,000 and then recalculate people's payments, which they want to do. And you can go into the income-driven plan and reduce the share of income paid. In this case, we'll talk about the details later, but from 10% to 5% of your income. So cut those payments in half. It was something the president campaigned on. So I think the pitch is pretty simple. We want people to, who have student loans to pay less money. Okay. So to understand this and listeners just buckle up because it's going to get a little bit uh, in the weeds here, but still to understand these things, you have to understand a few key features of IDR. And Jason, I've been asking you to help me understand features of these loan programs for a while. So I'm going to pitch this to you. Well, you need to understand the income exemption, the assessment rate, and the time to exemption. Can you lay those three things out for me? Right. Time time to forgiveness. Time to forgiveness. Yeah. So we've already said your payments are based on your income. So a key piece of this plan is it exempts some of your income, you know, just like in taxes when you take a deduction, right? So your payment is figured on an amount above an amount of income that you get to exclude. And the idea there is that you have some amount of money you need for your living expenses. Um, and, and so that shouldn't be counted towards the payment. And then there's this, the rate, what we call the assessment rate. So the sh percentage of your income that you need to pay that becomes your, your annual payment or your monthly payment on your student loan. And then the, the final piece is how long do you have to do that? Uh, and, um, and when you're done with that period of time, then the loan is forgiven. So those are sort of the three moving pieces. Uh, you might call them dials. Uh, the Biden administration is taking all three dials and turning them in a direction that lowers payments and shortens the amount of time someone would have to pay. Okay, so I think this is key to understanding this. You could say, well, we're going to keep everything as is, but we're going to pay off your loan after 10 years. And that would increase how much was forgiven. Or you could keep the, the time to forgiveness the same and you could say, well, instead of paying 10%, of your non-exempted income, we're going to make you pay 5%. And that would also increase the forgiveness over time and lower payments. Or you could say, well, instead of uh, whatever, 150% of the poverty line, you have to be, uh, we're only going to count income that's 400% of the poverty line. And that would also decrease payments and increase forgiveness. But in this situation, the Biden administration is moving all three of those dials in the same direction at the same time. Correct. Cool. All right. You Fantastic. Don't need, you don't even need me here, Matt. <laughs> well, uh, Matt, can you take us through those three changes? Because they're laid out in the proposed regulations. Uh, how far are those three dials moving? So they're moving quite a bit. Uh, the income exemption, that's the amount uh, that you don't pay anything on, as you said. 
It's currently at 150% of the federal poverty level. So put that in real terms. It's about $20,000 for an individual person, but it's also key to your household size. So if you're married with a couple of kids, family of four, it's about $41,000. And they're bringing that from 150% to 225%. So now for a single person, instead of not paying anything on the first $20,000 in income, you pay nothing on the first $30,000 in income. So if you make between twenty dollars and $30,000 before you paid something, now you'll pay nothing. But that's also a write-off for the people above that. So if you make $100,000, it's also still taking away $10,000 you have to pay on. Um, the assessment rate is going from 10% of that amount above the exemption uh, to 5% for undergraduates. This is important to emphasize because in the past, a lot of changes were made for graduate students. And so this will just affect undergraduate debt. If you have graduate debt only, it's 10%. And if you have a mix of both, it'll be kind of a blended, a blended rate. And time to forgiveness is it used to be 20 years, more or less across the board. And now it's going to be 10 years if you borrowed $12,000 or less, plus one year for each additional $1,000 borrowed. So you get back, once you get, I guess, to $22,000 in debt, then you're back to uh, the full 20 years of forgiveness. So it's for those lower balance uh, borrowers who get the 10 years. So it's a little complicated, but the, the short end of uh, the explanation is it's substantially more generous in the interim, you're not going to be making as big a payments for many borrowers. And in the long term, the principle that you have left at a certain period is go that's going to be forgiven gets larger. Uh, does that cover uh, all the changes, uh, Jason, or are there other uh, changes the Biden administration is proposing for uh, the IDR plans? There's one more piece to this. Um, that's going to make the, the program more generous and reduce payments further. We talked about three. There's actually a fourth. And this one is a little bit hard to understand, but it, it's, it's essentially waiving the interest that accrues on the loan. So when a borrower makes a payment based on their income, if that payment isn't enough to cover the interest that accumulated on the loan that month, under the Biden plan, all that interest, the unpaid interest, will be canceled immediately that month. So it's not really an interest-free loan uh, exactly, but it just means that if you're in this plan, your loan balance can never grow, no matter what your payment is. Um, and that, that's, a, a, again, a fourth component that's going to reduce the amount that people have to pay on their loan. And, and it seems to me that, look, not adding borrowers accruing interest to their principal when they are really low income on its on its own standing alone maybe a pretty good idea right i mean these people aren't making that much money and we're not going to grow their debt that seems like something that that i can get behind but when you throw it on top of all these other things the generosity of the entire package just mounts am i getting that right yeah um i think that you know Every borrower who uses income-based repayment now or income-driven repayment is going to have a lower payment under this plan. Some will have much lower. Um, and yeah, these are the you know, four features that are, are going to dramatically lower the, the amount. Now, yeah, you know, each one of them, like you said, just to echo your point, each one of them sort of makes sense by itself, and particularly the interest uh, accumulation. I mean, one of the, one of the big complaints about income-driven repayment that we that – I think people didn't see on paper when they first proposed income-driven repayment a long time ago, but actually saw, you know, out in the wild, in the field, was that 
it's designed to let balances sort of grow and and balloon, and that is is pretty frustrating and you know difficult for people to watch. Um, and so this solves it, this interest forgiveness piece, but it's not necessarily targeted, right? So the bigger loan you have, the bigger benefit you get out of this. And we're not, this is available to graduate borrowers and undergraduate borrowers. So it's not, there hasn't been a lot of an attempt to target it. So keeping your eye on all these moving parts, even if they're moving in the same direction, could be difficult. And that's where this paper you might have heard of, few college students will repay student loans under the Biden administration's proposal that you guys wrote, uh, sort of attempts to do this, right? You're trying to cut through and say, uh, well, I'm not going to say it. Matt, what are you trying to do in this paper? We're trying to look at you, turn up all these dials, and what happens? What happens to the share people who repay their loans? And so what we do is we look at people with sort of typical debt levels. And under current policy, IDR really is a safety net, safety net with a lot of problems. But on paper, if you, you know, get a bachelor's degree, get the typical amount of debt, you know, which is $31,000 for a bachelor's degree, um, more likely than not, you're going to pay off your loan. Even an income-driven repayment, you're going to pay it off because you're going to make enough money to pay it off. Under the new plan, that would be the exception rather than the rule. We estimate that only 22% would fully pay off their loan at the typical debt levels compared to 59% under current policy. And so a lot more people are going to be paying nothing or they're going to be paying, you know, less than less, even less than half of what they borrowed. So this is a pretty staggering thing that listeners can't see in the chart, although I encourage you to go read the paper. But under the current program, the average percentage of borrowers who are sort of in this average level – 59%, right, 6 in 10, are going to pay off their entire loan. And that's fairly uh, generous, or at least it, it denotes some generosity. Under the, the Biden plan, that 6 in 10 drops to about uh, just over 2 in 10 borrowers that will pay their whole, whole loan. Am I getting that right? That's right. And that's for bachelor's degree borrowers who borrow more and tend to have somewhat higher incomes. For folks who get certificates and associate's degrees, it's even more dramatic. Under current policy, 62% are expected to pay off their loan, and that's going to drop. So 6 in 10 is going to fall to 1 in 10. And these are for borrowers uh, who are in a situation where they got their certificate or they got a bachelor's degree. Uh, of course, there's people who borrow and unsuccessfully attempt these degrees. Uh, where do they fit in this mix? So the pattern looks pretty similar for them. I guess here on the podcast, I'm sure your listeners like appendices. And so if you go to the appendix. <laughs> they do. They do indeed. The appendix yeah. of our paper, figure 8.1 to be precise. We also have a figure in there for the non-completers. And it's a similar pattern of results. They're going to borrow less because they were in college for less time. But they're also on average going to make going to make less money. And so that it works out to a similar pattern. It's also more, more generous for them. Um, once again, maybe you could make a case non-completers. You want to help them more because they don't have the earnings. Um, but this is not a change targeted at any group of folks. This is a change across the board. So, Jason, that's the percentage of folks who pay off their loan uh, in full. That goes down. Uh, what about the remainder? I mean, how much or what portion of the loans do the, the rest of the folks pay? Well, I mean, there's going to be a, a substantial increase in the share of people that pay nothing on their loans. And, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, entirely bad because this program, the idea here, at least for some or the original idea of the program, was that it would provide a safety net, you know, for, for people who pursue a degree and it doesn't work out for whatever reason, you know, policymakers didn't want to sort of have them have to pay back this loan. Um, but there's a, a sort of big chunk in the middle now that's going to receive loan forgiveness or pay a reduced amount. And, and their incomes actually 
look like what we would expect the incomes to look like for someone getting that bachelor's degree or getting that certificate or getting that associate's degree. So instead of a safety net, right, because they're earning what you'd expect, they have good outcomes and they're still getting loan forgiveness. They're still not paying off the full loan. They're paying some of it or most of it, but they're still getting loan forgiveness. So what the Biden administration has done is turn, is taking a program that was intended to be a safety net and turning it into one that's going to broadly subsidize higher education through loan forgiveness. Um, and, and again, this is because the, the formula for determining payments is so generous that even someone who earns an expected income for a bachelor's degree, the formula will, will make their payments so low relative to their income, they just won't pay off what they typically borrow. So let me repeat back what I've heard. The Biden plan for bachelor's degree holders um, is such that uh, 49%, essentially half, are going to pay back half their loan or less. And so what you're saying is the way this sets up income-driven repayment is so that the average person is going to have a good chunk of what they borrow forgiven. So that kind of makes it work differently from the typical loan program we expect, which is people on average are going to pay back their loans. Is that an unfair reading? No, I mean, that that's what we get from our analysis. I mean, and, you know, we, we think that loan forgiveness will become the norm for undergraduates if they use this program, if they borrow and if they use this program. So there's another group that is that we haven't talked about, Matt. That's graduate borrowers. Now, this is a different class of borrowers than those that borrow for undergraduate uh, or associate's degrees. Can you just kind of, first of all, what's the, the difference in just graduate student debt compared to folks who have never been to graduate school and are going to be, you know, just in the camp getting their bachelor's or getting an associate's degree? The big difference with graduate borrowers is there's no limits, you know, no effective limits on what they can borrow. So as undergraduate borrowers, it's pretty hard to come out of college with more than dollars $45,000 in debt because the federal government puts strict limits on what you can borrow each year as well as sort of aggregate limits. But for graduate school, the federal government says you can borrow as much as you want up to what the program is charging, including tuition, but also room, board, other living expenses. So when you see people with $100,000, $200,000 in debt, those are people with graduate degrees with professional degrees. Um, and so because of their high levels of debt, they can benefit in general from income-driven repayment, even with reasonably high levels of income. And that's something Jason and I have written and talked about a lot over the years. And when these new proposals come out, that's usually where we're, we're, we're kind of focusing our, our, our analysis and our criticism. Here, I think they've actually done a pretty good job of focusing the new benefits on undergraduate borrowers, especially by limiting the 5% of income to people's undergraduate debt. But there are some features in here that will help graduate borrowers as well. And one of them is the income exemption. And so that, you know, even though they're still paying 10%, it's, they're paying 10% uh, on $10,000 less, that's an extra thousand bucks every year for every graduate borrower in this country. So there are some benefits here for graduate borrowers as well. But as far as the measures in here that are affecting, uh, well, let's call them the three dial measures, right? That is, we're going to uh, increase how much money you have to make before you pay anything, and we're going to decrease the amount that you uh, of that income over the th that minimum level that you have to pay, and decrease your timeline. For graduate students, those aren't all in play. In other words, they still have a 25 years to go before income forgiveness, and they still have to pay 10% of their income. So it's really not as focused on graduate debt. That's right. So they're going to get the income exemption, 
Um, they're going to get the 5% on their undergraduate debt, of course. Um, and then they are going to get this interest subsidy that Jason talked about, where your balance can't go up. And so if at some point you make enough money over those 25 years, that won't really matter because you'll pay, just pay it off a little bit later. Um, there could be some people with particular earnings profiles and also how this is going to intersect with the public service loan forgiveness program. Because that's a program where undergraduate, graduate, whoever you are, you get forgiveness after 10 years of payments. And so you combine that on top of some of these changes we've talked about today, that could make a real difference for some graduate borrowers. Okay, so in the paper, you look at folks who get associate's degrees or certificates, those who get bachelor's on, on the average, right? But of course, uh, what we know about averages is not everybody's average. So if you differ from these averages, I mean, just what would you expect? For instance, uh, the average debt load is $31,000. So what if you're a low-income kid who gets into a really expensive university, but you're not so low-income that you don't have to borrow a lot, so you end up with $50,000? What should we expect for for borrowers who have a lot more debt? Jason? Well, this goes back to Matt's point. For undergraduates, the amount that they can borrow is, is capped in law. Um, and I think many people will actually be surprised at how low those limits are, right? So for a dependent undergraduate student, their first year, they can only borrow $5,500. So it's really difficult to get out of school and, and have more than 30 some thousand dollars as, as an undergraduate. It's just, it's, it's quite rare. Um, so the, the $30,000 for a bachelor's degree, that there's a reason why that is such a, a common number and we all know it. And the reason why it's 30 is because that's about what the federal government will limit you to. Um, and for so for certificates and associate's degrees, because remember, you can get student loans to go to a community college or to go to a for-profit college. Uh, and, you know, those numbers are more in the like 15, 12, $20,000 range for how much people borrow because they're shorter term credentials. Um, so, so on the undergraduate side, there are loan limits in place. Like Matt said, on the graduate side, there aren't loan limits in place. Um, but we still find that for typical borrowing levels, even with the limits in place, there's still a lot of new loan forgiveness being driven by, by this program. And I think, you know, I mean, one thing we, we should talk about at some point, just to give people a, a sense, we've talked about there being a lot of loan forgiveness, and it's hard to know exact numbers. We can talk about percentage of borrowers. But it might just help, too, to give people a sense of what are the monthly payments we're talking about in this plan? Like how, much, how much will people pay monthly or how much will they pay overall on the loan? I think one of, the, one of the key points here is that we talked about this exemption, the amount of the income that is exempt before you have to make a payment. And that's moving up to a, a little over $30,000 for a single individual. Well, if you're getting a certificate or an associate's degree, when you get out of school, that's about what you're earning. You can expect to earn if you have a job, if you finish and you have a job, right? So these are, these are the good outcomes and the expected outcomes. You're going to make around 30, maybe a little bit more. Um, and that's right at that exemption. So, you know, good outcome, expected outcome, payment in this plan, zero. And that's one of the reasons why you're getting a lot of loan forgiveness in these analyses. So, look, some listeners and some readers are going to find these numbers pretty surprising, right? Like, I mean, this I, I said eyebrow raising in the intro. My eyebrows are raised. How do these compare to other simulations that have come out of these number or the projections that the Biden administration has sort of put out about the 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 costs associated with these IDR changes? Matt? I mean, they haven't analyzed the numbers in quite this way, but if you look at the you know proposed regulation they've put out, they've run a lot of analysis, and I think it's broadly consistent. You know, they show that I think they calculate 
what share per $10,000 of borrowing, how much will be repaid? Um, and they say that for undergraduates, that's going to fall to something like five dollars or $6,000, where for graduate students, it's going to stay more or less the same. It'll just fall a little bit. Um, and so I think, you know, the kind of significance of that is broadly consistent with their with their own analyses. And to some degree, you got to rethink of what what you're thinking about when you say this is a loan program, when right out of the gate, you're saying, well, you know, three, four, five thousand on every 10,000 going out the door is not going to be repaid. However, one of the, the great things about IDR is that it's income driven. So at least the forgiveness that's going to come and the relief that's going to come seems to be directly related to people's incomes. So that belies the next question. How targeted is this? I mean, do you think the targeting's uh, pretty good? I mean, the program always was targeted. And so in a way, this makes it it makes it less targeted to the extent it's, you know, bringing those zero payments further up the income distribution. So there's kind of two ways to look at it. One is that it's less targeted. It's a little bit less uh, progressive than before. Uh, the other way of looking at it is it's focused, you know, continues to focus on low and middle income borrowers. And that income isn't sort of incoming income like Pell, but it's income in the future. In other words, if you strike it rich, you're going to be paying what you borrowed. Right. I mean, it's income over kind of your whole life or at least over potentially up to uh, 20 or 25 years. So, Jason, in the report, you guys compare the benefits of the new IDR plan with Pell Grants. And those are grants for low-income students to help them pay sort of on the front end uh, for college. They're grants. We don't ever expect them to be paid back. What's the comparison you made and what are you trying to show there? Yeah, we, we've heard a few people say uh, they, they sort of can can understand that this program turns loans into grants. And you've, you've heard that criticism um, uh, or or maybe it's an, it's intentional. Maybe people think that's a good thing. They should turn the loans into grants. Um, but we wanted to sort of put that down on paper and measure it and see, how, you know, how do they compare to Pell Grants? Um, and so we look at, for example, certificate and associate's degree recipients today or in recent years, who received a Pell Grant. Um, and we try to measure how much they could expect to have forgiven on the loans that they, or how much they would repay or not repay on the loans that they take out. Um, and we found that, so they receive about a 10,000, they've received about $10,000 in Pell Grants, typically, if they received a Pell Grant. Um, and uh, we think they would pay back about $357 um, on a, on a $12,000 loan. So that leaves you with, $11,643 um, of the original $12,000 loan that doesn't get repaid. It doesn't cost the borrower anything. And that's more than they received in Pell Grants. So, so you know, we find, yes, that this will convert loans uh, to grants for a lot of people. For, for bachelor's degree recipients, the numbers are a little different. They borrow more, but they earn more. Um, so, you know, they receive about $17,000 in Pell Grants now. Um, but we expect that they will have, you know, they borrow $30,000. We expect they won't pay about eighteen to 19000 of that. So for bachelor's degree recipients who are getting Pell Grants, their loans will also be worth more to them than their grant aid. So uh, what we're talking about is ballpark estimates that are, on average, equal to Pell Grants. But there's a distinction that I'm going to draw here, and that is, uh, the administration wants to increase Pell Grants, and to do that, they have to get Congress to 
go ahead and legislate more funding for Pell Grants. However, the IDR changes do not have to go through Congress. Matt, am I getting this right? That's that's functionally right. So on one hand, um, it's sort of a backdoor way of doubling Pell. And I think there are some folks who think that's a great thing and some folks who would think that's that this is not the right way to go about doing that. But you have to th- also have to remember, you don't just get this automatically. When you sign up for college, you get a Pell Grant, right? Each year you get those, those funds deducted from what you owe uh, your college or university. Um, but with these loans, you don't get it on day one. You got to do a whole bunch of paperwork and navigate a repayment system for 10 or 20 years. So you can expect that you'll get these numbers that Jason and I have laid out in this paper. Um, but you won't actually get them unless you can navigate the system. And so I think there is some risk here that you can look at this and say, this is great. We're, we're kind of doubling Pell through this kind of sneaky maneuver. Um, but then be surprised when, when folks still struggle to actually get that benefit because they have to navigate a broken repayment system for 10, 15, 20 years. And, and we've seen this in public service loan forgiveness and other IDR programs where people describe things like bureaucratic nightmares and so forth. And the actual forgiveness amounts on what has been promised are in the like single percentage points, right? At least uh, before the past few years, those repayment plans are indeed difficult to navigate. And to some degree, this is where the sort of complexity is a tax, right? Like if you can navigate the complexity, you can get to the forgiveness. But if you can't, then you might actually be shortchanged on the, the, the options that might have been available to you. That's exactly right. These programs are highly complex. I think this package of changes includes some more, even wonkier things that we haven't talked about that are really good steps in the right direction that on their own are things you definitely want to be doing. And so there is some potential to mitigate some of that, but we have no idea how it's going to work out. And in the meantime, we're very much doubling down on a program that so far has really not worked out well for lots of folks. And it's been really frustrating to a lot of folks because they don't understand it and have a hard time navigating it. Yeah, there, there's a there's a whole bunch of... There's, a lot of implications here about having to take a loan in order to get this benefit. I mean, there's a lot. There are a lot of people that don't take federal student loans right now, particularly in the community college space. Um, and actually, and that's who could benefit most from this. So we are we are going to be in a world if this is enacted uh, in this form where we're going to be in this sort of dilemma of having to encourage people to take loans. Right. So th- this will make loans so advantageous that people will have to consider now, gee, I probably should take it. I think financial aid offices will have to tell people you should probably take the loan. You probably won't have to take it, pay it back, but we also don't know. And so that also, I don't know what kind of inequities we could be baking in here where some people, if they're comfortable taking the loan that they probably won't have to pay back, they're probably going to get a big benefit. But if there's people that aren't comfortable taking loans because they don't trust what you're saying or they don't understand how it could be that you could take out a loan and not have to pay it back, that group might not be able to get this benefit. Um, and th- that's why this is such a fraught way to provide financial aid uh, in a higher education. System. So, Jason, you are pulling on uh, the, the uncertainty of future borrowing and what might happen because of these loan changes but that has to come after we do a section we call grade it here on the report card. Are you guys game? I guess we have to be. Yeah, yeah, I guess we have to be. <laughs> Matt, you start out. Free college plans. Free college plans. I would say um, A, for trying them out at the state level. Uh, C, for trying them at the federal level. Jason, higher education in Finland. 
Uh, oh, I, I, I give them an, an A for subsidizing their higher education system, and I give them a C for access and equity in their higher education system. And this is because they spend a lot of money for their free college, um, but you got to ration access if you're going to have something that's free. And so not a lot of people get in and not a lot of people get bachelor's degrees in, in that country. Matt, <laughs> the current Pell Grant program. Give the current Pell Grant program an A. It's the backbone of how we finance uh, students who come from low-income families. Jason, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. Uh, I guess I, I'd have to give that an F. Um, I, it's, a, it's a sort of <laughs> terribly targeted program, and um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really sure it, it accomplishes what, it, what it's supposed to be doing. So. Matt. District of Columbia Public Schools. Overall, made a lot of progress. Uh, can't really rate a school district. It's a whole bunch of schools, but I'll give my kids school an A. All right, fair enough. Uh, Jason, grade the prospect of taking out a student loan for an undergraduate. Good investment, bad investment, what is it? Good idea, bad idea? Uh, I, I, a B. I'd give it, you know, it's generally generally a good idea. It's and about why? it's about to be an it's about to be an A. <laughs> but why uh, is it a good idea? We're moving it from B to A. So. Uh, student loans get such a bad rap. Why why would you give such a relatively high grade? You're not an easy grader. Right. Well, if you think if you think college pays off uh, in higher earnings, then the loans are are probably worth it, and the amount you can borrow is capped, um, and the repayment terms are are very flexible and very affordable. So. You know, it's a, a yeah. You should you should take out a student loan. Um, you know, that's generally it's generally a good bet. Matt, Scotland, Scotland, A plus. Love going to Scotland. Great mountains. Jason, Ireland, and if you like Irish higher ed, I give it an A. I've been to Ireland. It's a great country. And its higher ed system. Uh, it, it's it's higher ed system. Um, I, I guess I I give it a. A C um, for, you know, trying to do free um, college and they haven't been able to do it because they haven't they don't have the finances they don't have the political support. Uh, and so they've gotten themselves into into a sort of complicated uh, financial mess with their universities. Matt, the benefits of an Ivy League degree. Abstain. <laughs> <laughs> Give it an A. It worked out for me. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Jason, the value of a college degree in general? Um, a B. I give it a B. It, I mean, I think it's, it generally works out for, for most people that, that have them. Matt, uh, the, the informativeness of the National Assessment of Education Progress. Give it a B plus. I mean, it's... It's what we have. It's an important measuring stick for uh, what people know and can do in this country, but it often gets misused and like any uh, big assessment has limitations. Jason, the student loan program for graduate degrees. Uh, a C. I would give it a C. Yeah, tell me why. Well, I mean, it does provide access to, to financing for people who might not be able to go pursue a graduate degree or pursue 
degrees where there might be might not be private financing available. Maybe we're all better off for that. But it's it's uh, pretty sloppy in how it gives out aid and benefits. And, and I think there's a there's a lot of uh, uh, poor, poor payoff, poor value programs in that space. And I also think that um, that there's a lot of uh, loan forgiveness coming down the pipe for for graduate degrees uh, that didn't pay off. All right. Thanks for playing a tough round of uh, Grade It. We've talked about the modeled IDR changes that you have. They're pretty huge. And we talked about what they may uh, affect about what borrowers will end up paying after they take the loans. But that seems to me to be only half of the equation we should be concerned about. Because if they affect what borrowers might end up paying, they probably will affect what borrowers might pay on the front end. So... How do you think this uh, I, this set of IDR changes the Biden administration is proposing might change borrower behavior on the front end? Matt? On paper, these changes should really put the pedal to the metal in terms of accelerating the growth in student loan debt and you know, basically makes it so everybody should borrow. You're crazy not to borrow. But I think it's still uncertain what that means in practice because you know, on paper, you get this benefit, but you don't get it by just signing a form. You have to do all this paperwork for for 10 or 20 years. People may still be averse, you know, reasonably so, uh, to taking on taking on debt. So it's got to lead to some increase. So the question is just how large is that increase? Let's say I've been paying into a 529 plan for my kids. And, and we have some tax benefits, save for college, et cetera, et cetera. But now I, I'm looking for it. I'm saying, well, hold on a second. Does it make sense to invest in a 529 program if relatively large chunk of my kid's education I could borrow and a, a good chunk of it might be forgiven. D- does it change those kind of calculations? On the margin, I think it does. Um, but remember what we talked about earlier, the undergraduate loan limits are, you know, you're pretty much capped at $30,000, $40,000 over the ca- course of a bachelor's degree. So if you're the kind of family who's putting in a 529, you might be thinking not just about you know, a relatively inexpensive community college or state university, but something much more expensive, an out-of-state public, a private nonprofit. And if that's what you're trying to to save towards, you still should be putting away a lot of money. So the brinksmanship on this is really limited by the amount of money that you can borrow anyway. So the upside isn't limitless. And and, and we talked about this for graduate loans. Well, there's there's no caps on that, but the the improved turns on IDR are just not the same. So there's some good limits for sort of gaming this system. Right. But on the margin, I mean, if you're a relatively affluent family in the past, you might have looked at the federal loan program and said, no, we don't need to take that. We don't you know. We can just we can just pay for it. You know, well, I have my I want my kid to graduate from school debt free. But now it's like, well, maybe you should just take the 30, 40,000. You know, if you your child's looking to, to go into you know investment banking, well, they're going to pay it back. So they should not bother with the loan. But if they're going to go into a field where you know the income is going to be low, they want to become a teacher or a social worker or any journalist, any number of professions that have modest incomes. Suddenly you might look at the numbers and say, you know what, you know, take the take the 30, 40,000, because otherwise that's money we're leaving on the table. And it, it's important to point out here, a lot, a lot of people will miss this, but uh, in, in sort of more lay audiences is the um, there is no income test to take out a federal student loan. It's every single student can take one out. It doesn't matter what your family's income is. Um, so, I mean, that, that's important to recognize. So, so there will be people who weren't going to borrow before because they didn't feel like they needed it. But now they're going to be able to get a, a significant benefit through this program. So, I, so this, is, this is one of the big ironies of, of the Biden plan here is that 
all of the complaining about student loans and the size of student loans and the amount of debt that people have, there's going to be more student loans out there after this thing because more people will have an incentive to take them. Um, just to echo Matt, you'd be crazy not to take one if, if, this is going to, if these are going to be the rules. So there will be more debt. There will be more student loans. There will be more student loans in, in corners of our higher education system where it has never been before. Uh, and because these will be, these are the benefits that are available. But again, I will also echo, I'm not sure who's, who's willing to take some, take on some of the paperwork and some of the, there is still some administrative gamble here too. Um, you know, I could imagine a, a, a middle-class or upper income family that may have the money and they don't need to take the loan, not taking a loan because saying, I don't want to deal with all of that paperwork. And, and it, there will be a significant amount of paperwork. I mean, there are no means-tested programs that don't involve paperwork, um, and this is certainly one of them. But to, to put this, to turn that on its head, this may not be a huge incentive that's going to goose everybody's borrowing habits, but it's not going to push anybody to borrow less. Is that right? I mean, are there any changes here that would make anybody say, well, now I should borrow less? If anything, it's going to increase student borrowing. That's exactly right. And I think you also have to think about what is this? I mean, there's been a lot of, I think, some very legitimate concerns in the past about overly aggressive marketing, student recruitment tactics by colleges. You know, the for-profit sector gets called out for this a lot. Um, and, you know, in those days, these were, in theory, loans that most people would have to repay, and they were getting people to sign on the dotted line, maybe not understanding what they were doing. But now those, you know, more unscrupulous actors can go to people and say truthfully, you know, sign for this loan. Yeah, it's a loan, but you're not going to have to repay it. And sure, they're going to downplay the 20 years of paperwork that you might have to to get the forgiveness. Um, but I do worry about the potential here to super to supercharge some of those unscrupulous, you know, predatory actors in, in higher education. So when we talk about sort of higher education generally, a lot of times we're going to talk about debt because debt is a huge part of financing that. But a lot of times we just talk about how much it costs. I mean, the system is just expensive. Um, what if anything, will these IDR changes mean for the the cost of college? Jason? Well, I, you know, I think that the plate, you know, we have these loan limits in place. Um, and if you're a student that was already borrowing at your loan limits, um, a good share of them already do, uh, then you, if you're one of those people, nothing changes here for you. Um, but if you're someone who didn't take out a loan or didn't borrow the maximum when you did take out a loan, that's where, that's where we would see potential for change. And the interesting point here is most of that sort of slack in loan eligibility is in the community college space. About 50% of community college students don't borrow. If they do borrow, they don't borrow the maximum. Um, and so and not that that would necessarily push up prices, but I think what you'd say is someone who says, I already have grant aid or I have my own money to pay for this, but now I can take out a loan. I'll take out the loan also because that's extra money that I'm probably not going to have to pay back. And remember, you can borrow for living expenses too. And at the community college space, most of the borrowing is, is for living expenses because tuition is so low. Um, so there's just, a, and that's, <laughs> that has nothing to do with where the institution sets the price. That's sort of like discretionary borrowing. I think we're going to see uh, some, more, some more of that because of these changes as well. I guess also think about folks who are not currently going to college and you put something like this on the table, maybe it makes it more attractive to go to college. And in some cases, that could be a really good thing, right? We're bringing people in to higher education who can get a, a degree or credential that they can benefit from. 
Um, but that's where I kind of worry about the unscrupulous actors, because right at the for-profits, people are probably already maxim- maxing out their borrowing in a lot of cases. So as Jason said, it doesn't affect them. But does this make it easier to bring in people both to good programs, but also that being a double-edged sword, also bringing in uh, to, to less quality programs? Right, because access could go up under this, right? I mean, there, there's generous terms, and we pad it in case your college education doesn't pay off or even – if you don't get a degree, we sort of, there's a hedge. There's some insurance against that downside. And so to that degree, this could increase access. But what you're saying, Matt, is access to who and for what, and there be dragons uh, potentially down the line there. That's right. At the same time, I don't want to oversell this point because these are really complicated programs. It could be that these, yeah, these changes are a big deal on paper. It could be that it doesn't really cut through. As you said, people are talking about the $10,000 in forgiveness, but they're not talking about this. So if they make this change, the administration makes this change and no one knows about it, um, it could be at least in the short run, the effects aren't uh, you know, uh, that large in either direction. Um, but we've seen time and time again, these changes that didn't make a big impact immediately can have bigger changes down the road, right? So when they made it, when they moved to a system that Jason talked about where uh, student loans aren't means tested anymore back in 1992. You know, maybe it wasn't a big deal right away, but over time, lots more people have loans, right? When they lifted the cap on graduate borrowing, maybe not a big deal right away, but over time, lots and lots more more borrowing. And so these these changes can, can make a difference both in the short run, but also in the long run. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. So, you know, we can talk about cost to students. Let's talk about cost to the government. The Biden proposal to forgive $10,000 in student loan, 20000 for Pell, that's expensive. There's no doubt about it. It's hundreds of billions of dollars. Biden's changes to IDR will be less expensive. I mean, that's the question I'm putting on the table. The Department of Education estimates it's going to cost $138 billion over the next 10 years. So my first question is, is that 10-year estimate right? And my second question that I want you to tackle is, is that a good reflection of how much these changes will cost sort of in the larger picture? I mean, how expensive to the government is this move? Jason? Um, well, uh, let's see. I don't want to get too too wonky with it, but I think the best way to think about the cost of the student loan program is what does it cost to make a new loan going forward? I mean, there's going to be a bunch of cost in the old loans that suddenly become eligible for this benefit. And there's a whole bunch of those loans outstanding. There's a cost to that too. But, but going forward, this is going to cost about this change incrementally. The Department of Education's estimate says this is about six billion a year um, because of these changes. But we already spend almost ten billion a year on loan forgiveness benefits in income-driven repayment. So we're going to move this from like a ten billion dollar program to something around sixteen. And again, that's the Department of Education's uh, estimates. I mean, that's a you know that's that's a lot of loan forgiveness. Um, it's a significant amount of loan forgiveness. And I don't believe their estimates. And the main reason I don't believe their estimates is they're assuming that this doesn't lead to any increase in participation in IDR. And the whole point of this policy is to increase participation in IDR. So, I mean, part of the rationale for the policy itself undermines the estimates of how much the policy will cost. Exactly. And I, it also assumes that no, you know, no, there's no new borrowing, you know, no, no more people going to college. And I get that stuff is really hard and speculative to estimate. But you can at least think about, you know, you know what the participation rates are now at different levels of income. You could try and do some back of the envelope projections of or, or what's your goal, right? How much do you want participation in IDR to increase? And if you, if you get there, 
um, what's it going to cost? And I think that could mean that that 138 billion is really a, a lowball estimate. So we got to plan these things out, right? You got to project them, and you got to use some uh, assumptions in these uh, programs when you're saying, "Well, what will happen? What happens if we hit a huge recession?" Right now, wage growth goes up. I'm assuming if wage growth continues to grow, then the IDR cost sort of either stays where it is or actually goes down, right? Because wages go up. What happens if we have a major recession and wage growth goes down, Matt? So if, you know, if people make less money than you're expecting them to, uh, they're going to pay less on their loans if they're in income-driven repayment. And you know if that stays for true for long enough, you'd be forgiving more of the loan at the end. And so, I mean, that's not the biggest sort of risk, source of risk I worry about here. I mean, the whole point of an income-driven repayment program is to insure people against exactly those kinds of risks that your income falls perhaps unexpectedly through no fault of your own due, for example, to a recession. Um, that could, you know, interact with some of the kind of budgetary modeling and things like that. But I think that's in the, at the end of the day, it's probably a second-order issue to some of the bigger issues we've been talking about today. Fair enough. Jason, you've taken a look at some other countries higher ed programs. Any insight that you've seen in other countries that maybe bear on these IDR changes? Yeah, there's two countries that operate income-driven repayment systems similar to ours, uh, England and Australia. Um, they're actually going in the opposite direction that we're going in. Um, they're making their plans less generous because um, there isn't the political support for how expensive they've, be they've become. Um, so, for example, Biden is talking about, in his plan, moving the loan forgiveness number from the year to 20 years of payments to 10. England has moved it uh, over multiple changes from 25 to 40 just recently. So it, England is saying you should pay back your loans longer <laughs> and under their income-driven repayment system. Um, Australia has been changing their system to require people to pay back larger shares of their income. Than, than before. And so, you know, I think that's interesting because many, many people said, you know, we should model our plan based on what those countries are doing. Um, and we're actually going in the opposite direction from, from them now. I mean, I will say, though, this, the Biden plan looks more like the English and the Australian models in that it will broadly subsidize higher education through loan forgiveness. Um, or through income-based, very low income-based payments. Um, and that was the idea behind the Australian and the English system was they got rid of free college. They instituted a loan program where everyone would use loans, and the idea was that most people wouldn't have to pay them back. But that was in exchange for getting rid of free. Um, what we're doing is most people won't have to be, pay them back because we can't get the political majorities for free. The other big difference is in Australia, I think this is true in the UK as well, your payments are done automatically, same way you, you know, you take your taxes come out of your paycheck um, through withholding. That's how you pay your student loans in Australia. So you lose your job, but you don't default on your loans. You know, you have some big medical crisis in your life, you don't default on your student loans. And so, uh, Jason knows, in some ways, we're moving closer on paper to such a, a more subsidized system in terms of the rates and all the details. But it's still in this world where it's not done automatically. Uh, you still have to do all the paperwork, and a lot of people are going to fall through the cracks, and a lot of people are going to default. And so there is an important provision to try and take one step, you know, the, probably the biggest step you can take without Congress in that direction, which is to enroll people automatically in IDR if they get behind, you know, if they get to become delinquent on their loans, but only if they've checked a box on their master promissory note that they won't be able to check until a couple of years from now when a recent law Congress passed called the Future Act goes into effect. 
So it's a small step in that direction. But I'm really skeptical, uh, you know, a generous IDR system that's meant to subsidize everyone can ever really work unless we go to a system much closer to Australia where it's done automatically without all the paperwork, without all the servicers. So, Matt, you're talking about the future and when these things go into effect and it's complicated. What about this IDR plan? When does it go into effect? Because it's not in effect yet. Is that correct? That's right. And so this will be able to go into effect more quickly. So in the past, they would do this by creating a new plan. And so we had old IBR, we had new IBR, we had ICR, we had pay, we had repay. I used to joke we were someday we're going to have re-repay, and that's actually what we have now. My joke has come true. We now have the revised repay plan, which itself stands for revised pay-as-you-earn plan. Um, but by revising the repay plan, that, that can automatically affect everyone who's already in that plan. And so they're saying that's going to buy you know, later this year, they're going to put at least some of those changes into effect. Um, but they're saying some other changes, and they haven't specified which ones, will go into effect later. And then, of course, it'll take some time for people to realize, oh, hey, wait a minute, um, this other plan is better. Let me switch to that plan. And, of course, this is all contingent on payments actually restarting at some point, which, you know, as a lot of folks probably know, you know, will have been paused for more than three years by the time they resume, maybe later this year. Jason, how much transparency is there in this? I mean, we've talked for 35 or 40 minutes now about trying to pierce these regulatory changes and, and, and what they mean. I mean, how much sunlight is getting into this system? Uh, I mean, this is all hard to figure out. I mean, these are very opaque subsidies. I mean, I, you know, for, even for the people taking the loans themselves. Uh, yeah, th this is a very, very roundabout way to subsidize your higher education system. And it's, I think that's actually one of the risks in, in, in providing aid this way is I think people will be surprised in the end who got their loans forgiven and who didn't. And I think we're going to create a lot of distrust and a lot of uh, resentment over that. You know, so what, wait, you, you didn't have to pay back and I did. How come you got yours forgiven? Oh, you didn't sign up. Uh, I mean, that's, we're, we're, that's some of the administrative complexity that Matt's talking about. I mean, you can design a system that looks sort of equitable by income on paper, um, but if people think it's supposed to be operating one way and it doesn't operate the way they thought it was supposed to, uh, there's going to be a lot of frustration. And, you know, I mean, for a long time, the student loan program has sort of operated on this bargain that, you know, you, the government would give you a good deal on a loan, but you'd, most people would pay it back most of the time. Um, and we're not going to be in that world anymore. And I don't, I don't know what that does for the political support that's actually been there from both Republicans and Democrats for a very long time. I don't know if that starts to change. In the context of the public discussion about student loans, this proposal very much has a feel of, you know, the food stinks, but the portions are too small. <laughs> so last question. I mean, to give the Biden administration some credit, nothing's going to happen out of Congress anytime soon. I mean, that is just very difficult to get policy change out of Congress. I, I'm going to take it from your modeling and, and what we've been talking about, that this is turning too many dials too quickly. Um, if you had to give a, a real short answer, and I'm going to ask this to both of you, where would you push the Biden administration to get it right on not trying to push something through Congress, which may not be forthcoming anytime soon, but getting uh, the s some relief out there without pushing it too far. Matt? 
Yeah, so I think at the end of the day, you need Congress to really clean this mess up. But it's a fair point. It's probably not going to happen. And so it's absolutely incumbent on the Biden administration to make some changes, make these programs work better. And they've done some great things here. We didn't even talk about they're getting rid of some of the old plans. So there's going to be fewer plans. It's going to be simpler going forward. They're taking a step towards automatic enrollment in IDR. Um, they're you know making it so your balance doesn't increase. Some things that, that I think make a whole lot of sense. I think where they've turned the dials too far is where they've made it in the situation where, as Jason said, people who we think are successful – you know, who are finishing a degree and getting a decent job with a decent starting salary aren't going to repay their loans. So I would actually just go back and adjust the most expensive dials here are really just the income exemption and the percentage of income paid. And so it's not just about dialing those back, but it's about tuning them in in a way that is more progressive. Uh, Make it look a little bit more like our progressive income tax system. Don't have it go from you pay zero to suddenly you pay 5% and you pay 5% forever. It should be zero on people with relatively low incomes. And then maybe it goes to 5% for, for ten or $20,000 in income. And then it goes up from there so that the more money you make, uh, the higher share of your income you pay back. And that would preserve pretty much all of the benefits in terms of helping people repay their loans and making payments more affordable in the current plan, but it could do so at a fraction of the cost. Jason, thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, just to keep it simple, we talked about how they, you know, they moved four different dials. You know, I don't pick two and move those. Uh, I mean, it's the fact that it's all all four moving in the same direction. I mean, I think Matt's point that the income exemption is is probably the more sort of equitable and progressive piece of this. Um, so okay, keep that and do another one. But the the assessment rate, the percentage of your income, that five percent rate is is doing a lot of the heavy lifting, not all of it, in in sort of transforming the system into a broad-based subsidy for people who actually have good outcomes. A lot of dials moving a lot of directions and a lot of forgiveness uh, on deck. Thanks for coming on the report card to talk about it. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the report card with Matt Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Matt Chingos and Jason Delisle. We'll include a link to their paper. Few college students will repay student loans under the Biden administration's proposal as well as some of Matt and Jason's other work in the show notes. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review to help other people find the show. We want to hear your comments, questions, or topic suggestions, so send them to us at ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. Thank you.